0: When you think of the word kingdom, what comes to mind? In my mind, I picture castles, knights, maybe some archers and a king on horseback surrounded by guards. I picture someone with a claim to a territory, a king who sends out decree after decree to ensure that every subject under him knows enough so that they are able to align their lives with the plans of that king so that they can contribute to the vision that the king has for his empire. And really, it's the commands of the king that help to demonstrate who in his kingdom is loyal to him. Loyal subjects don't take long to get with the program, while others balk at the king's vision, eventually deciding to be enemies of the crown. I admit that historically, kings had differed widely in their values and goals. Some kings wish for their kingdoms to be defined by wealth, some by power, while others have wanted their strengths to be renowned by placing much emphasis on the decimation of their enemies. A king can say, My kingdom will be great by being wealthy and mining gold. Or, my kingdom will be great because of our brilliant engineering and building power. Or, my kingdom will be great because we have the biggest and strongest army. Either way, at the onset of their reign, the king communicates his intention by letting everyone know how his kingdom will work. And more than this, he explains what the responsibility will be of every person under his leadership. They will be told to be miners, scholars, maybe builders, or perhaps soldiers. Now I mention this because this is, at least in part, what the book of Mark is about. It's about God's kingdom And how it works. And at the onset of Mark, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now, in chapter 4, in reading these four parables, Jesus teaches us what his kingdom is all about. And how those who would be his subjects ought to behave. In its historical context, the word gospel doesn't only mean good news in a general sense. When the book of Mark was written, everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, understood gospel as relating to the coming of a kingdom where power would change hands and a king would come to take back what was rightfully his. And so Jesus came as that king, demonstrating his authority, teaching and healing, driving out demons and drawing crowds, calling his subjects to himself, while at the same time offending those who opposed his claim to the throne and driving them away. That being said, I want to take some time to think about what these parables mean for his kingdom. Now, if you do some research on these parables, you may find that some some people think that these are completely disconnected and that the parables are sort of random and tossed together with no apparent strategy. But I find that hard to believe because of Jesus' reference to the kingdom of God. If we look at Mark 4, verse 11, we can see that Jesus describes the content of parables as the secret of the kingdom of God. And more than this, in the parable of the seed growing, Jesus begins by saying that the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, in verse 26. And finally, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, in verse 30. These parables are meant to teach about Jesus' regime, to show his followers the nature of God's kingdom. Sure, verse 12 says that the parables are meant to To confuse his enemies, a quote uh, taken from Isaiah 6 9 to 10. But for those who would follow him, parables give them an insight into the currency of God's kingdom. And you know what? That currency is not gold, (laughs) it's not military strength. What will grow God's kingdom, defeat his enemies, and ultimately bring him the glory he deserves, is the word. The word of God is the essential piece of his kingdom. And those who would be his subjects must understand that this kingdom's growth will not depend on the strength of an army, but the truth about God. And so, because I want to try and be organized, I want to share with you four points that Jesus is making about his kingdom through these parables. And I will word it this way. God's kingdom is, one, word-centered, two, unconcealable, three, God-dependent, And four, growing. Now let's look at each of these points in terms of central themes for each one of these parables. Let's start with the sower. The parable of the sower teaches us that the growth of God's kingdom involves the spreading of his truth. God wants his kingdom to multiply But he also wants his people to be active in that multiplication. If I take this parable at face value, I would have to argue that it seems that it's about volume. Casting seeds every which way. It's not very strategic. Most of us would never plant gardens in this way because of the fear of wasting valuable seeds. And I'm not being critical of the Lord's parable here, but I have always thought that a better name for this parable would be the parable of the clumsy sower. Haphazardly throwing seeds around all willy-nilly. No soil test, no caution. A total disregard for the potential crop. For me, it just may be That the Lord is saying our evangelism, that our sharing of the gospel as human beings is clumsy at best. But that being said, he's also saying that our awkwardness should not stop us. And that we should all be sowing the word with reckless abandon. Desiring a harvest without fully knowing what the soil is like under the surface and which seeds that we plant will finally germinate and grow. Also, in terms of the word, this parable seems to suggest that receiving God's word is essential for further expansion of the kingdom. Sure, there are four soils, but really there are only two types of people in this parable. Those who receive... And those who don't. The ones who don't believe God's word don't multiply. But those who do become the starting point for the faith of others. And one more thing, one thing that I really like about this passage Jesus doesn't seem to mind that the seeds are being wasted. He's not giving a speech to not squander his word, he is saying, spread it everywhere. If you don't think it will take root and grow, everyone needs a chance of well, the lamp. The parable of the lamp teaches us that the kingdom of God is unconcealable. It is saying that it shouldn't be hidden. It is saying that it cannot be hidden. It is saying that it will not be hidden. To me, this is less about getting your act together and guilting yourself into evangelism, but really more about the nature of God's truth. Jesus is saying that the word's very nature is to be heard. The good news of Jesus cannot be contained. If it is in you, it's going to come out of you because that is the one, defining quality of the word. And this aspect reminds me of, of John 1, verses 4 and 5. When talking about the word, which is Jesus, John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me ask you, What room gets darker when you bring a light into it? None. When I think of sharing the gospel, I think of it in this way. Not as seeing people as projects to tally up our holiness score, but as a natural overflowing of the light of God that is in us. We share the light because it is good, because it is great, and to some degree, because we can't contain it. So in saying this, I acknowledge that according to the parable of the sower, people are able to hear the word and reject it. However, what I'm also hearing in the parable of the lamp is that Once the word has been accepted, and we believe it wholeheartedly, we won't be able to help ourselves. And our pure enthusiasm and joy for God's truth will pour out of us, just like water pours out of a bursted pipe. Now the parable of the growing seed this parable serves to take the pressure off of us for results. And I say that because like the parable of the sower, this parable in verses 26 to 29 serves to demonstrate who actually makes the seeds grow. For those of us who are result driven, who would have a tendency to strive to do everything in our own power, to make someone believe, this parable is saying, don't give yourself too much credit. It's going to happen whether you try really, really hard or not. When referring to the sower in verse 27, it says, he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Anyone who's ever grown anything knows that while you're resting, your plant or your fruit doesn't. It grows with you when you take care of it. But when you are asleep or when you are gone on vacation, it doesn't stop. The mystery of growth, the not knowing how in this parable is meant to shift our focus towards God and his sovereignty we cannot force confessions. We cannot coerce conversions or devise the cleverest of arguments to ensure that people will believe. All we can do is so. Tell the truth. The behind the scene changes. The growth that comes. God is responsible for that. It's God's job to make fruit grow. Yes, we are to tend to each other. But God is responsible for people coming to him. And I'd like to mention that once again, we seem to be described here as just sowers. And I like to add clumsy at times. Finally, The parable of the mustard seed is about growth. The nature of God's kingdom is to grow. Though the word may seem insignificant in the beginning, it is so potent that it will spread and grow. The kingdom of God is supposed to be huge. Our part, our position as sowers may feel insignificant we may feel like our simplistic, awkward presentations of the gospel are too small or too bad to make a difference. But that's where it starts. And as history shows, that is where God puts on his greatest displays. In the seemingly insignificant, in the imperfect, in the weak and the small. As I mentioned earlier, kings have the ability to decide how they will be defined, how they will be glorified. And I would argue that God wants his kingdom to be defined by the recovery of lost souls. That is his preferred means of attaining glory. That is through an enormous collection of people. Who once were lost, but now are found. If we're going to be about our Father's business, if we want to get with the program of the kingdom, then we have to be about growth. God's kingdom will not be stagnant. So, those are the four principal themes surrounding the kingdom of God here in Mark 4. Four points that Jesus is making about his kingdom. And again, just so so we remember, they are the kingdom of God is one word-centered, and we see that in the parable of the sower. Unconcealable, and we see that in the parable of the lamp or the light. Three, that it is God-dependent, or the results of evangelism is God-dependent. And we see that in the mystery of the growing seed. And finally, that the kingdom of God is all about growth. And we see that in the mustard seed. Now, I mention all of these because I believe them to be true. But also because I think that the point that Jesus made about his kingdom were not only meant to demonstrate God's will, but also were intended to correct a problem within the Jewish culture at the time. And we're not above that. Um, This may also be a problem that we are prone to uh, at this time. A problem that I can only describe as a kind of elitism. I would argue that God's desire for his people to evangelize or spread the word about God as redeemer, God as savior, is not new. In the New Testament. The incarnation of Jesus is a new thing. But the teaching. On evangelism. On spreading the word. Is the same as it was in the Old Testament. From Genesis on. God has reminded Israel. To bless all nations. To tell other people about God. And have them become followers. One passage That shows this is what some call the great commission of the Old Testament. And it's found in 1 Chronicles 16. I'll read you a few verses from it. But this is a command dictated to to Israel. Starting in verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. I'd like to emphasize here, it says, make his deeds known among the peoples. And even with that teaching, for some reason, Israel was prone to lose this part of their calling. And they became more about being God's special people and not God's chosen people to witness to the world. You see what they did was take God's word and turn it into an inside affair where they focused on themselves. They focused on Israel and instead viewed all other nations as the unchosen or the outsiders who would not be saved. Uh, For a good um, description of that mentality, I think reading Jonah uh, would be helpful. You see, they were happy to hold on to their status for their own sake. And so what Jesus is really doing here is reminding the people and really his chosen disciples that any status that they think they have is not meant for just their benefit, but for the benefit of his kingdom. And they have to realize that by being chosen, they have been given... A bag of seeds to sow and that by being chosen they've been given a light that cannot be hidden that by being chosen they've been asked to acknowledge that God is responsible for blessing the efforts they make for the sake of others and that by being chosen they are part of a kingdom that isn't interested in just blessing those who are already safely inside, but by bringing those on the outside into the domain of the Lord. I would now like to conclude with a prayer for a spirit of evangelism. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Savior, You desire that none should perish, and you have taught us through your Son that there is great joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. Grant that our hearts may ache for a lost and broken world. May your Holy Spirit work through our words, deeds, and prayers, that the lost may be found and the dead made alive, and that all your redeemed may rejoice around your throne. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.